thank you, Rich. I hope that all of you will will do that and participate with you as well. How many of you, I'd just like to uh, find out this morning, how many of you, this is your first time here at Dillon Community Church. Could you, would you be willing to raise your hand? One guy, two guys. Great. How many, this is just kind of an annual visit? All right, great. Well, great, good. We always appreciate that. We, we do give a, a prize for anyone who's uh, 8,000 miles or greater. Uh, so, well, today I don't know if I'm going to preach as much as I just want to chat. I think it's time for a chat. Uh, and I, I, I say that because uh, when we talk, we take a, a theme like onward, sometimes the truths of getting us to go onward can get a bit sticky. And I know that uh, in just one week, I turned uh, 7-0. I never thought this day would come. But it's here, and it's staring me in the face. It's next week, so there's still plenty of time to get a present, if you desire. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. All right. Just kidding. But I, I think I'll take the role of the grandfather today, if I may, and say to you that there are times where there are, there are points and there are things that need to be said that occasionally can be a little uncomfortable. There are times where you certainly can look at your grandfather and you can say, yeah, Grandpa's always there to encourage me. But Grandpa's also sometimes have to exercise tough love. And when we get stuck in our Christian life, it's oftentimes a little bit painful to get us unstuck. This morning, I want to just chat about the idea of the whole truth of identification. Uh, that's the, one of the key factors in getting you, getting me, getting anyone in the Christian life to move forward. If you've reached a plateau in your Christian life, if things are kind of just running on cruise, you're not necessarily going on to the next level, or at least in mature growth anyway, oftentimes it lies in the whole issue of identification. And what do we mean by that? Well, when I was a kid... I used to identify as an athlete in baseball, football, basketball. I played those three sports all the way through college. I was fortunate enough to get all the way through my freshman, sophomore, junior, and senior year, both in high school and in college, and play all three sports. You can't do that much anymore, but it was fun to do that. But I can remember as a little kid, whenever I was playing baseball, I would identify and think I was Mickey Mantle. I wasn't, but I like to think I was. And I'd get up there the same way the Mick could get up there and hold my bat the same way. Watched him on television, wanted a bat just like Mickey Mantle. I identified with that. When I was playing basketball, I wanted to be Bob Cousy. I, that guy could dribble. Then there was Pete Maravich. I wanted to be Pete Maravich. And then there was football. My hero was Sam Huff, the great linebacker with the Giants. And I, I just love I love to play ball. And when I was playing those positions, I would think of myself in that way. I would identify. And the reason why is I was hoping that it would improve my performance. <laughs> when we think about the Christian life, who do you identify with? 
I've talked now to musicians who, when the kids are learning violins, they think of some of the great violin players of the world, and they identify with those people as they try to learn the violin. When you find thespians and people who are going to go into the acting field, and they think of their heroes that have gone on and, and been great actors, they identify with them and try to feel that particular person in their life so they can improve their performance. Is there any truth to that in the Christian life? What do we identify with? Or perhaps maybe you could identify with the lie-based pain in your life. Now, for just a moment, I want to show you a couple slides that might be real helpful. And as this picture comes up, it's a picture of the brain. And uh, the brain is an interesting animal here. It has a frontal lobe, it has a cortex, it has a amygdala. Now, if you look at the frontal lobe, that has to do uh, with a sensory perception. That has to do with the idea that I can see something, I can identify it. And then the cortex is, uh, that's, based, that's your database, that's like your computer. It files all the information for you. And the amygdala is the emotional part of the brain, that's what reacts. So let's put this all together for a moment. Let's say, for instance, and it's probably a tough example to use in church, but I really did pray about it, so I'm going to go with it. But let's say we have this, as only in the Rocky Mountains we can have some of these huge rattlesnakes, and we've got one sitting on the platform here today. The frontal lobe identifies that. Yep, that's a rattlesnake. But it sends a signal to the cortex, which is the database and says that's a North American reptile that's extremely dangerous, which then sends a signal then to the amygdala, which is the emotional side, which says do not proceed any further. In fact, back up. Now all of that is done in a billionth of a second. It doesn't go from the frontal lobe and says, well, let's see, let's, let's get in touch with the database. Oh yeah, the database is kind of busy right now, so they're going to get back to me in a couple days. This isn't like your normal work week. All of this takes place in just a millionth of a second. Now, when a child is young, and by the way, you're saying, where'd you get this material from? It's from a book called Emotional Intelligence. One of the best reads I've had in the last two decades. The author says that what happens when we're children is we go through a lot of crisis in our life. And sometimes our brain is not developed to handle it. So here's a little five or seven year old little boy watching his dad leave the house because he's found a new sweetheart in Chicago that looks better than his current wife. He doesn't understand why daddy's leaving. He's got the frontal lobe part. But the author says, and it's interesting that this author of emotional intelligence, this Jewish secular psychologist, stumbles on truth, which is always God's truth anyway. And he says that little boy sends a signal that goes directly from the frontal lobe to the amygdala. It bypasses the cortex. And he sees his dad walk out the door and you know what that little kid thinks? It's his fault. 
if I had just been a better boy, Daddy wouldn't have left. He doesn't have a developed database. He doesn't know about relationships. And so now he becomes a people pleaser. He becomes a person who, who when somebody looks like they're going to abandon him, he does one of two things. He either tries to please that person so they don't leave, or he abandons them first so he doesn't get hurt. A little girl, it's 11, 10, is raped. It goes from the frontal lobe right to the amygdala. She doesn't go through the cortex. It's not developed enough. She thinks it's her fault. And now she comes to believe things about herself like she's no longer deserving of really true love. And she's broken and she's busted and nobody wants her. And she lives with that. 30 years goes by. She's dealing with this, and then all of a sudden, in the midlife, as for many of us, all these truths, these lie-based pains start to bubble up in our life. And we seek out people. I like my wife, who's a therapist. And she has to go back to the original time where this got developed and where this lie was believed. All of us have lie-based pain in our life. Nobody gets a pass. The problem is, how does that enter into our Christian life? And what does that mean when Jesus has died for us? We need to take a look at that this morning. How do I move from just being a Christian who is uh, experiencing the freedom from the penalty of my sin, the forgiveness of my sin, to a Christian who understands that Christ has actually delivered me from the power of sin. And so I want to talk about some of those. I want to chat with you this morning a little bit about what Christ did actually on the cross. In Romans chapter 6 we read this, Well then, should we keep on sinning so God can show us more and more of His wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin... How can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined Him in His death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we have been united with Him in His death, we will also be raised to life as He was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that, we, so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. Man, what a plan. Now, these last few weeks, I've been dealing with the theme of onward. I've been using a lot of quotes you can find most of those quotes that were compiled in a little book called The Green Letters written by Miles Stanford. And so I'm, I'm going to use some quotes from that book today. For instance, Evan Hopkins writes this, The trouble of the believer who knows Christ as his justification is not as to its guilt, but sin as to its ruling power. Well, that's a whole different deal. We just said 
there's power in the blood. You bet there's power in the blood. It can forgive your sins. But that's one thing. But how in the world do you escape its ruling power? In other words, it is not from sin as a load or an offense that he seeks to be freed. For he sees that God has completely acquitted him from the charge and penalty of sin, but it is from sin as a master. To know God's way of deliverance from sin as a master, he must apprehend the truth contained in the sixth chapter of Romans. There we see what God has done, not with our sins. The quest, that question the apostle dealt with in chapter 5, basically. But with ourselves, the agents and slaves of sin, He has put our old man, our old original self, where He puts our sins, namely on the cross with Christ. And then He says this, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Him. The believer there sees not only that Christ died for Him, which is substitution, but that He died with Christ, which is identification. Just think. Just think of that. You were crucified with Christ. He didn't die alone on the cross. You were there. And the old nature has been rendered powerless. Andrew Murray said, Like Christ, the believer too has died to sin. He is one with Christ in the likeness of His death. And as the knowledge that Christ died for sin as our atonement is indispensable to our justification... So the knowledge that Christ and we with Him in the likeness of His death are dead to sin is indispensable to our sanctification. The great missionary Hudson Taylor said, Since Christ has thus dwelt in, our, in my heart by faith, how happy I have been. I am dead and buried with Christ and risen too. And now Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Nor should we look upon this experience, these truths as for a few. Here's, 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 a, here's a really important line. They are the birthright of every child of God. And no one can dispense with them without dishonoring our Lord. I, I don't know about you, but I have stuff I've had to work out in my life. Nobody in this room is perfect. We all have our stuff. Someone once said, to err is human, to forgive is divine. Wonderful. It's a great phrase. We should use it more. <laughs> and there are times where we, this lie-based pain comes into our life. Some of us were, suffer from abandonment issues. Some, are, some of us suffer from control issues. Some of us uh, suffer from so, such deep and thorough pain in our life, but often it's not based on truth. It's a based on a lie. It went right from the frontal lobe right to the amygdala. It bypassed the cortex. And now, in Christianity, we're asking you to come back and develop a whole brand new cortex. It is with my mind, the, the, uh, the Apostle Paul says, it is with my mind that I serve the law of God. It's what's in that brain is that is important. That's why Tim LaHaye was right. The battle is for the mind. It is, gang. It really is. This is an important instrument up here. The Word of God, David said, have I hid in my heart. He was talking about his brain. 
If you talked about his heart, he would have used the word spluckna, which was liver. That's where the emotions, you know. And I'm sure that Tony Bennett would have had a time writing, I left my spluckna in San Francisco. <laughs> you know, but the point is, the point is, you're developing a whole new man, a whole new person in your life that doesn't deal with lie-based pain. Now, there can be some pain that comes from truth, you bet. We all have to deal with that. We have to deal with the truth. But oftentimes, we believe a lot of lies. I have no other argument. I have no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died. And that he died for me. my black friends say, are you tripping, brother? Take a trip on that one. That's truth. That's what needs to pass through the cortex. William Newell said this, to those who refuse or neglect to reckon themselves dead to sin, as God commands, we press the question. Great question. How are you able to believe that Christ really bears the guilt of your sins and that you will not meet them at judgment day? If you believe one, why don't you believe the other? It is only God's Word that tells you that Christ bore your sins in His own body on the tree, and it is, at the, same, it is the same Word that tells you that you are connected with Adam, died with Christ, that your old man was crucified, that since you are in Christ, you shared His death unto sin, and are thus to reckon your present relation to sin in Christ as one who is dead to it and alive to God. This morning, gang, I just, I've got some great news for you as a grandfather. <laughs> I want you to come to understand this. I want you to identify with this. That not only are your sins forgiven this morning, but sin will not be master over you. It doesn't need to happen. So why do we let it master us? Why do we allow that in our life? Thank you for asking that question. All right. We can certainly awaken the old nature, and we can awaken the new nature. I want to show you a picture of a teeter-totter, may I? Our graphic design goes to all lengths to try to bring you great slides. There's a little teeter-totter there. And you can see there's a little fulcrum under there. It's called the law. The teeter-totter is called the sin, or the old man here, the sin nature. The teeter-totter works fine as long as there's a fulcrum there. But you pull that fulcrum out. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. You pull that fulcrum out, and the teeter-totter won't work. And that's why Scripture says, apart from the law, sin is what? Dead. So we tend to put ourselves under the law. We're the ones who kind of activate the old nature, even though it, doesn't, it should be rendered powerless because Christ's death did that. We have a tendency to want to reactivate it. Lewis Ferry Schaefer said this, The theme under consideration is concerned with the death of Christ as that death is related to divine judgment of sin nature in the child of God. The necessity for such judgments and the sublime revelation that these judgments are now fully accomplished for us is unfolded in 
the verses we read this morning, verses uh, 1 through 10 of Romans 6. This passage is the foundation as well as the key to the possibility of a walk in the Spirit. Ruth Paxson also said, The old I and you and me was judicially crucified with Christ. You died and your death dates from the death of Christ. The old man, the old self in God's reckoning was taken to the cross with Christ and the, and the crucified and taken into the tomb with Christ and buried. Assurance of deliverance from the sphere of the flesh and the dethronement of the old man rests upon the apprehension and the acceptance of this fact of co-crucifixion. Do you identify with that this morning? Because if you do, you're going to move onward in your faith. I want to illustrate what I've just said in those last two quotes. There's the story of an old sea captain who was ruthless. Just ruthless. And his men were pretty sick and tired of it. And one day, they mutinied. They got the old captain at gunpoint. They tied him up to the main mast and bound him. But they didn't gag him. They just bound him. He was tied up to the main mast, and they were sailing home. They elected a new sea captain who was gracious and kind and benevolent. But the next morning, the sailors got up, and they were going about their normal duties as sailors. And because the old sea captain was simply bound to the mast, but not gagged, just out of habit, he started barking out all kinds of orders. And because the sailors were used to this guy, they started doing them. <laughs> Did they have to? No. They were now under the reign of a new sea captain. But their old nature was so bent and so thwarted by this old captain that they just kind of did instinctively. Let me tell you, it's the same way in the Christian life. You have been translated from death unto life, and you're under the marching orders of a new captain. But the old captain, the one that was your captain when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, he just keeps sending out the old orders. And guess what you do by instinctive nature? <laughs> you kind of obey him. <laughs> Got it? You get it? As a grandfather, I say to you this morning, please get this. I guarantee you, this will not only help you to rejoice that your sins have been forgiven, but sin is not to be a master over you. You don't have to listen to that guy anymore. And God has given you the power so that sin does not have to be your master. Not only has He forgiven your sin, He's delivered you from the power of sin. That's what needs to pass through your cortex. Watchman Nee said, Our sins were dealt with by the blood. We ourselves are dealt with by the cross. There's power in the blood. You bet. Thank you, God, for forgiving our sins. And thank you, Christ, for dying for me. I'm now delivered from sin's mastery over me. The blood procures our pardon. The cross procures deliverance from what we were in Adam. The blood can wash away my sins, but it cannot wash away my old man. I need the cross to crucify me, the sinner. Now, I recognize that Watchman Nee later in his life kind of went off the chart, but this stuff, when he was a little younger, was good stuff. 
Ellie Maxwell says, believers in Christ were joined to Him at the cross, united to Him in death and resurrection. We died with Christ, He died for us, and we died with Him. This is a great fact, true of all believers. Norman Harrison chimes in, this is the distinctive mark of the Christian, the experience of the cross. Not merely that Christ died for us, but that we died with Him, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with Him. What a critical statement. F.J. Hugel, a little bit critical here, so I'm going to let warn you. He says, if the great Luther, with his stirring message of justification by faith, had with Paul moved on from Romans 5 to Romans 6, with its amazing declarations concerning the now justified sinner's position of identification with the crucified Lord, would not a stifled Protestantism be on a higher ground today? Might it not be free from its ulcerous fleshliness? I've looked at that quote and I've said, well, if any part of that is true, Lord, show me. Alexander Hay, the believer has been united with Christ in his death. In this union with Christ, the flesh, the body of sin, the entire fallen sin root being with its intelligence, will, and desires is judged and crucified. By faith, the believer reckons, counts himself dead unto sin. T. Austin Sparks. I love many of his writings. The first phase of our spiritual experience may be a great and overflowing joy with a marvelous sense of emancipation. Who among us who didn't come to Christ just loved that experience when we first came to Jesus? In this phase, extravagant things are often said as to the total deliverance and final victory. Oh yeah, we were filled with all kinds of hopes and dreams. Then there may be, as and often does, come a phase of which inward conflict is the chief feature. Anybody identify with that? It may be very much of a Romans 7 experience. This will lead under the Lord's hand to a fuller knowledge of the meaning of identification with Christ as in Romans 6. Happy the man who has been instructed in this from the beginning. And I say to you today, I hope that from the very beginning you understand that not only your sins are forgiven, you have been delivered from the power of sin. And if you don't know that, you'll probably keep listening to the old sea captain. Jesse Penn Lewis says, if the difference between Christ dying for us and our dying with Him has not been recognized, acknowledged, and applied, it may safely be affirmed that the self is still, dom is still the dominating factor in life. You see, not believing has consequences. That's why Jesus never called any believer a hypocrite. Not one. He never called anybody a hypocrite. He called the Pharisees hypocrites. But He never called any believer a hypocrite. You know what he said to them? He said, it's just a lack of faith. And that's why he wept over Jerusalem. Because there was no faith. What would Jesus say if he was standing outside of Dillon Community Church this morning? I mean, what would he say about our church? Would he say, uh, you know, when I think of Dillon Community Church... I try to tell everybody that I can that Dillon Community Church has got it down perfectly. There's nothing they need to do to improve. Or would he say, oh my goodness, these folks have a long way to go. Or maybe not so extreme, would he put us somewhere in the middle? And then all those passages come up about being hot and cold and not being in the middle and being lukewarm. Kind of a dangerous place to be in Scripture, isn't it? 
I think the thing that really gets to the heart of God itself is a person who believes that what God did for him matters. That he identifies with those truths. That it went from the frontal lobe, it went through the cortex, and it gives the proper emotional response. If we understand in our life, for instance, that if he is for us, who can be against us? If that literally goes through our database, we see it in the frontal lobe, we see it in Scripture, it passes through the cortex, what kind of thing should that cause for us emotionally as Christians? Should that cause us to worry more, to be more anxious? To cause us to get upset, to, to drive us to, to a point where we're just exhausted and worried about everything? Or is the truth of, since He is for us, who can be against us? Does that cause comfort to come into your life? How often we just go from the frontal lobe to the amygdala. We're emotionally charged by messages and emotionally charged by videotapes and DVDs and, and, uh, and, and CDs and everything else in our life and podcasts. And we feel good for the moment. It's gone right from the frontal lobe or from the, basically the hearing and the seeing right to our emotional cavity without passing through the cortex and not dealing with some of the lie-based pain in our life. Who do you identify with this morning? William Cumberson said this, Who died on the cross? Of course, our blessed Lord died on the cross, but who else died there? Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be what? Destroyed. That henceforth we should not serve sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Reginald Wallace says, God says, in effect, my child, as you reckon on the substitutionary work of the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, now go a step farther and reckon on His representative work for your victory day by day. You believe that the Lord Jesus died for your sins because God said so? Now take the next step. Accept by faith the further act that you died with Him, that your old man was crucified with Him. When I grew up, I grew up a little bit in the summer times uh, working for my uncle up in Canada. I was a little town called Mydale, Saskatchewan, which was between Estevan and Weyburn, which are neither one of them megatropolises. <laughs> Mydale was a total number of maybe 238 people, and I'm sure that was counting all the dogs and cats. It was not, it was not uncommon to go out in the field and see a couple of my, my uncle and maybe one of the neighboring farmers standing out there overlooking their crops. And I don't know what it is about farmers in Canada, but they always had to have a piece of grass in their mouth. And they would kind of take that in and out. It was, I, I, you know, when you're only seven, that's cool. Where, where do I get some grass? You know, you wanna, I want to look cool too, you know. And so we'd stand out there. And, and, and the conversation was not exactly tintillating. Very slow type of speeches. In fact, they, 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 they drive up. we drive up sometimes and we'd walk out. One of the guys would be standing there. My uncle would come up. It wasn't like, hey, how you doing? What's going on? It just silence. And my uncle would turn to him. And he'd say, uh, morning, Ed. That was after five minutes. 
Then Ed didn't respond real quickly. He'd say, Art, how are you? And then we'd switch some grass in our mouth again, you know. And, and then uh, Art would look up and he'd say, Looks like it might rain. Time would pass. Ed would say, I reckon. Can't you just grip the challengingness of this conversation? <laughs> I'm having a little fun at my uncle's expense here. Give me a give me a little latitude here. But there was the magic word. I reckon. Now to you and me, that might mean, yeah, I guess so. Not to a farmer. When a farmer said it's going to rain, and the other guy said, I reckon. They mean, you can count on it. You can go to the bank on that. That's why the whole idea of identification or reckoning these things in my mind that they're true is an important issue in our life. In fact, James McConaughey says this, because he died, death hath no more dominion over him. And because of our union with him, shall, sin shall not have dominion over you. Even though it is present in you, our reckoning ourselves dead to sin in Jesus Christ does, does not make it a fact. It is already a fact through our union with him. And what we need to say in our reckoning is, when we hear that we've not only been forgiven for the penalty of sin, but that we've been given the power to live over sin, all God's people said, I reckon. <laughs> this is your grandfather talking to you now, right? And all God's people said, and you need to say that every morning. <laughs> because you know what? The evil one has been put down for a while. But God is still letting him move around. And he keeps whispering in our ears, you're not that great. You're not that good. God has not forgiven you. You can't live over sin. You're going to fail at this big time. And we go around saying to Satan, I reckon. Yeah, I guess that's me. I'm just a chump. I'll never be a champ. Well, let me tell you something. It's what you reckon. And now notice the last part of this quote. It says, Our reckoning it to be true only makes us begin to realize the fact in experience. So where does that leave us today? Well, let's take a look at our brain again. Shall we do that? You see the frontal lobe, the sensory perception, then you see the control base with the database and the emotional with the amygdala. Let me show you another slide here. If we forget and we go right from the frontal lobe to the amygdala, you can see that the crucified, or you see the crucified Christ by himself. You don't see yourselves there. You feel sorry for Jesus, and you often do your best to identify with his suffering. So you suffer too. You love that your sins are forgiven. But you do not identify and you cannot believe that you are saved or that you've been set free from sin. You believe, actually, by not believing it, you believe the lie. You're thankful that the sins have been forgiven, but you're not sure you've been 
forgiven or, or given the power to live over sin, and so you wind up believing a lie that you don't believe it. But here's the issue. If you go through the cortex and the Word of God goes through your brain, as it says in Romans 7.25, with my mind I serve the law of God. Here you identify with Romans 6 and begin to count on the way you have risen with, been risen with Him and sin is no longer a master over you. Wow. What a difference. That's why we have memory time. That's why we memorize verses. That's why the little kids in Awana or the little clubs memorize these verses so their, their cortex can be filled with truth. The Word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against Thee. Well, there's three facts I want to leave you with this morning. Number one, I'm no longer under sin's influence because I'm dead to sin. Number two, I do not need to obey the sinful desires of my life. And I do that because we should not serve sin now, it says in Scripture. And number three, I can activate my new nature through worship. I come every Sunday. Here it comes. Here it comes. Grandpa's coming. I come every Sunday. And I can worship and activate my new nature through worship every Sunday by saying, I reckon. That's our new word this week, okay? Turn to the person next to you and say, I reckon. That's it. Those are the truths we want to do it. It's been good chatting with you this morning. Let's pray. Lord, it is your grace, your sufficiency to whom we give all praise and do. Thank you that you just didn't leave us on this earth and you're standing over the precipice of heaven saying, yeah, I've forgiven your sins and now good luck. Try your best. But you've actually given us the power to live above sin. Help us reckon on these truths. Thank you for the men that were quoted today. Thank you for a fellow like Miles Stanford who put it all together in his little book. Thank you that we can preach this with confidence and with truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.